0: morning. So this is the second of what will be a annual tradition for us, and where we declare a day of Thanksgiving. Um, I know that the president does that, and they pardon some turkeys or something. It's goofy and stupid. Um, and stupid. It's really stupid. What do they do with the, They the, you know, they usually bring in, like, multiple turkeys and pick the most photogenic one. And then they eat the others. <laughs> Um, I was telling my wife. I mean, I love uh, historical facts about this time of year. You know that uh, the vote be- between on the national bird, the turkey lost by one, by one vote, and so its punishment was that we eat millions of them now once a year. <laughs> I don't think we would have eaten eagles if it would have lost. But Ben Franklin, he was a big proponent. He um, he used to take turkeys over and and give them to kings in Europe because, you know, they put them in their menagerie because they thought they were so unusual. Um, And, I mean, they're just like giant weird-looking chickens. (laughs) Okay? So there's a lot of nonsense about Thanksgiving, Uh, and there's a lot of cheesy, you know, greeting card kind of sentimentality about it. But what I want to do every year is, is talk about the fact that this is a distinctly Christian holiday, rather the majority of people realize it or not. It really is. And um, I am, admittedly, a Pharisee about Christian liberty. I think anyone who knows me knows this. If you can, you should, right? If God says you can do something, you ought to do it. It should be a law. Uh, And therefore, I can sometimes be a little persnickety about what people do or don't eat, do do, do or do not drink, or smoke, for that matter. And so uh, I read, had us read from Romans 14 earlier, mostly to warn me before I got up here and started telling everybody what they ought to eat and drink and celebrate. So we have to remember that. It wasn't just so that we could hear that verse again about how the weak brothers are vegetarians, um, (laughs) because it says that. But oftentimes, in our circles, the weak brothers are the ones who do smoke cigars and do drink whiskey and do eat a lot of red meat like myself. So... I want to talk about a problem that they were having in Ephesus. I want to talk about asceticism. Um, and, and, and I'm going to do that because it's, it's in the text and it's, it's conceptually important for us to understand the context of what is going on before Paul says something quite shocking about our priesthood of, uh, about the priesthood of believers. Um, I don't think most of us have a, have a problem with asceticism. I don't. Um, but I, I think we have the opposite problem. It's not that we deny things to ourselves out of some sense of holiness. It's that we are generally like gluttony is like a respectable sin in our community. Uh, I would I would say that officially. So as I, as I say things about this, I'm going to try to really clarify this because mo- most of you would be like, oh, he's talking about asceticism, and I've never wanted to be a monk and live in the woods and, and only eat crusty, moldy bread, so I'm not going to listen. I'm going to try to make it as applicable as possible to all of us. Okay, Thanksgiving is a really big deal. It ought to be. And, and what we eat and drink is a really big deal, and, and it should be. And so we should take time to not only thank God to declare a day of Thanksgiving, but to really think about what we eat and how we eat it and why we eat it, right? How we interact with creation itself. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for your, um, the church and, and the gifting that you have spread uh, in our body. Uh, those who uh, come here early and prepare this service, uh, those who play instruments and sing, um, this, uh, everyone here who gives generously of their, of their wealth and their resources, We're so thankful, Lord God, to have this community to worship in the midst of. We thank you for one another. We thank you for the sanctifying work that that we do in one another's lives. We thank you for this building. We thank you for your uh, Bibles and the vernacular. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God who fills this world with good things. For us to learn in some small way, The goodness of the Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we would come to see that goodness even more so this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. So, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. That's what I'm going to be talking about today. So, I think, you know, if you have any experience with the Bible, we know there are certain things we all know about 1 Timothy. It was written by Paul to his assistant, whose name is Timothy. (laughs) He wrote two letters to him. Uh, This is the first. These are called the pastoral epistles, generally because it has a lot to do with uh, the work of a pastor and setting up the church and and how the church is organized. Timothy was in a a place called Ephesus, which is another city that I think we know quite well from the book of Ephesians. So Ephesians received a great, probably more instruction than any other location in the New Testament. Uh, If you go to Acts, Paul was there for years and returned several times. There's the book of Ephesians. There's two letters written to Timothy in Ephesus, and I think there's at least one more. And, And so Ephesus was an important place. There was a lot going on there that was crucial to the church and its foundation. Timothy was a young man, Timothy was inexperienced. Paul really wants to give him advice about how not only to deal with, right, we're used to the portions of this letter that instruct him how to organize the church and minister the gospel and preach and teach and do do those things, but there were also false teachings going around. There were heretical things being taught. And it was just as important for the young pastor, Timothy, to learn how to deal with that as it was to organize his own church. And so that's what we're going to start with. And and the unique solution um, that Paul has for Timothy and to deal with this heresy that's being taught is something that we can all generally apply to every aspect of our lives. Um, you know, I didn't really read these letters as much before I was a pastor, and and, and now I, I tend to oh they they have letters just for us, and so I read them and I think you know I should have probably read this when I was just a young man. Th- these should be renamed the young men letters because young men ought to read these a lot. So here we go. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1. This is what it says. Now the spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, <laughs> right, I tend to skip commentators on this kind of thing from the middle or from the reformation because immediately everybody starts talking about Roman Catholicism. Right? And, and it's almost like the blinders go on. It's like, well, Paul was clearly talking about monks in the Middle Ages, uh, and Luther, and, and that, this is what we think of when we hear a verse like this. But Paul wrote this long before there was anything like monasticism. Long before there was anything like the asceticism, uh, the unfortunate asceticism of Roman Catholicism. He says, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. When he says later times, he doesn't mean the 1500s, right? which is sometimes what we mistakenly think. What he means in later times is the, the day of the Lord. Uh, in the Old Testament, they talk about this period of time that's coming, and they call it the latter times or the day of the Lord or the, the new age and this kind of thing. And what it refers to is after the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in the latter times is the time in which Paul and Timothy are alive. This isn't a prophecy for the future. This, this was is real for Timothy and Paul as it was for Martin Luther as it is for us today. Now if you notice, Paul begins his exhortation by confirming the validity and authority of the Holy Scriptures. Okay, all scripture it says in 2 Timothy chapter three, verse sixteen, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now the word breathed, most people don't know this, but it's it's the same word for spirit. Okay, it's it's, it's breathed out, and that word is pneuma. Num, right? And pneuma and, and is the is the Greek word that refers to the Holy Spirit. So when it says that it breathed out, it's not like Paul was sitting somewhere in a comfy chair and, and God is floating above him just sort of blowing air on him or something. Right? It, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Right? God breathed out the New Testament. He breathed out the Old Testament. It was, it was the work of his spirit. His breath is the Holy Spirit. And that was what went out from him and moved the prophets and apostles to write the word of God. Okay, Second Peter one twenty one I think, is a little clearer about this. It says, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God chose specific men because of their history, their vocabulary, their comprehension, their reading comprehension. He chose specific men. Okay? and and how they wrote what they wrote is is he really it was very important to God but we can't forget that just because Paul is really clever right that it, it's of him when Paul writes something that is now been taken into the holy scriptures it's breathed out by God Paul was carried along by God there are other letters that Paul wrote that we know exist that aren't in the scriptures and and the, the very reason the reason is is because they weren't breathed out by God, right? Paul writing them doesn't make them scripture. The, the the scriptures are the scriptures not because the church says they are, but because they're self self-authenticating. Now what does that mean? Self-authenticating? Well, Jesus says that the sheep will hear my voice, right? And they'll know me. They'll know the shepherd because they hear his voice. And so you read this letter and you think and and, and Over time, you see, okay, yes, this is the word of God. You read another letter that Paul wrote, and you're like, okay, this is not the word of God. It's very weird. It's the same guy. Now, I really appreciate the um, providence of this. We don't have the other letters. And I think that God has saved us a great deal of turmoil (laughs) with that. The word of God is breathed out by God. He is working and moving in specific men to write them. When John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, did John the Baptist bestow authority on Jesus when he saw him? No, he recognized. He said, oh, look, the Lamb of God. And, and, and when the scriptures were compiled, that is essentially what the church did. Behold, the Lamb of God, right? Then you, you trace out the Gospel of Thomas is a horrible little book. And you say, okay, not the Lamb of God. Okay, <laughs> The Bible is not the Bible because the church said so. The Bible is not the Bible because if you open the first page on the copyright page, that's just what the books are listed there by some board at Crossway. That's, that's not how it happened. And, and this is very important to Paul. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, he, he's saying it, he's going to talk about prophecy now, and he's going to, he's, he wants it to be very clear to us who said it. Where did the prophecy come from? It's the Spirit. The Spirit said these things. But Paul doesn't say the Spirit said. If you look at this word, it doesn't say, if you look at 1 Timothy four one, now the Spirit expressly said, as if it's past tense. The word that he uses is says, present tense. Okay? This is how Scripture is to be understood. Men wrote it through the agency of the Holy Spirit, and it is by the Holy Spirit that men comprehend its meaning. What Paul is saying is that it's not that God spoke in the Holy Scriptures. He speaks in the Holy Scriptures. Paul sat down, and God spoke to him, and and Paul wrote it down. He sends the letter to Timothy. Timothy reads it, and it's God speaking right then to Timothy. You make a copy of it, right? It makes its long way all the way down here to Bothell, and I've got a copy right here, and it's still, this is Paul's point, God speaking right now. It's written by the Holy Spirit, and it's comprehended by the Holy Spirit. It's a living and active thing. I, I love this, that Paul does this. He's not talking past tense. He's talking present tense. Therefore, anyone who picks it up and reads it, it's the Lord God speaking to that person, revealing himself, just as he did to Paul, right now to the person reading it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12-13. through 13. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The Spirit is the one who carried the authors along, and it's the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding as we pick up what those men wrote and read it. But there's a danger to this. Because we start talking about the spirit. We start talking about spiritual things. What, what's, what, what many of us struggle with is the fact we don't really believe in spiritual things. Not really. I mean, we talk about certain truths being spiritual because we don't want to deal with them being something we have to do in real life. Well, that's a spiritual truth, right? The law of God is a spiritual truth. I don't really have to obey it, right? It's just this sort of vague, nebulous, spiritual advice. But... The problem is there are a lot of spirits. The Holy Spirit isn't the only spirit in town. Now, we've been studying Mark. Is the Holy Spirit the only spirit active and involved in Israel when Jesus is walking around living out the gospel? No, there are spirits all over the place. And this is very, it's very interesting that Paul starts with the Holy Spirit and the prophecy of the Holy Spirit because what he's dealing with is a spiritual problem. He wants them to go back and look at what the Holy Spirit has said. What has the Holy Spirit taught you? What has he expressly taught you? First John chapter 4, verse 1 through 3 says this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So there are spir- <laughs> this is Well, the- God told me that I need to move to Denver. Oh, he-, he did, did you? Yeah, I had this unbelievable spiritual experience where I just felt overwhelmed by this spirit. Well, what are you going to go to Denver to do? Grow pot. Uh, that doesn't sound like something Jesus would want you to do. So I, I, don't dig, I don't disagree that you had a spiritual experience. What I disagree with is that it was the Spirit of God. Um, was his name perhaps Beelzebub? I don't know. Okay, that was an extreme case, because I'm being very, I'm trying to be gentle here. Lots of people have these spiritual experiences where they feel this overwhelming sense of God talking to them. And I would ask the Spirit its name. I would say, okay, Spirit, who's, who's overwhelming my mind now with this feeling that I ought to do this thing. And if I say that it's God who told me to do it, who can really argue with that? Right? Who's going to argue with that? (laughs) It's it's really difficult. People sit there and you're like, well, okay, well, God told you. I guess I don't want to contradict God. But I would like to know the Spirit's name, and I would like to know if what the Spirit is telling you to do is something that upholds Christology. Right? Is Jesus the point of what the Spirit is telling you to do? Okay, and then this is, you gotta be really careful with people because then they start doing all sorts of like weird jujitsu, logical jujitsu to try to explain it really is about Jesus and not just about them wanting to move to Denver. We have to test the spirits. The spirit of God proclaims the excellencies of Christ. If it, if the spirit doesn't do that, it's not the spirit of God. The, many problems arise here. We want to be spiritual people. Right? And, and so we assume, we assume that spiritual things that happen to us are of the Holy Spirit automatically. And th- this, is, this is very dangerous. The other thing we do is we, right, most of us are, are modern children. We are children of the modern age. And we don't even really believe in all of this stuff anyway, right? We put, I mean, come on. They put someone on the moon. You don't still believe in nonsense like this, do you, about spirits? And, and this was C.S. Lewis's argument all the time. Because he would talk to people and they're like, right? And maybe you guys have heard arguments like this. Like we can, do you know what human beings can do now? You're still believing in superstitious nonsense like spirits, right? The world hasn't changed, right? You go back to the Old Testament, it's not a different world. You've got spirits leading people astray. You've got spirits, right? I mean, if you go to Ezekiel, at one point, the king of uh, one of those countries, they refer to him as Satan, Right? The spirit that's indwelling the king of this country is Satan. And, and you go, and, and there's a there's an angel that comes and speaks to Moses, and there's an angel that comes and speaks to Joshua. And then Jesus comes, and he sends his Holy Spirit, and we think now that the only spirits that are in the world, are, if there are any, are of Jesus. So if we believe in spirits at all, we have a very limited view of it. This is this is something that modern people really need to, to to take time. The materialism of the modern man. We think there's no spiritual stuff behind it, right? A car is just a car. A breeze is just a breeze, right? <laughs> my my kids and I were looking at a story recently where this man, a sinkhole opens up and swallows a man's whole house. Now now then we started talking. Well, okay. Well, who? That's. I mean, a sinkhole opens up beneath someone's house. That's pretty outrageous. So we were debating whether it was the spirit of God who did it or an evil spirit who did it. And I thought, this is awesome, because it it could have nothing to do with spirits. But the fact that my kids automatically assume that it could be is, I think, a sign that my wife is instructing them correctly in the word of God. There are spirits. There are spirits. The false teachers are deceived Men. who have not been diligent in testing the spirits that have come to them, right? The, the men who are leading people astray that Timothy has to deal with are men who are in the church. And they're instructing people in asceticism. And it's very spiritual. And because it's spiritual, it's 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 that in itself is causing people to go astray. But what these men have not done is test the spirits, right? Somebody who, just because somebody gets into a pulpit and preaches the word of God... And is moved by spiritual things to teach you spiritual things doesn't mean that the Spirit is of Christ. Right? Let's, let's look at Joel Olstein. There are a lot of spirit there's a lot of spirit involved there. Not the Holy Spirit. Because what is that whole ministry about? Jesus? No. Not at all. Okay, these men have been led astray. They were not diligent in testing the spirits, and now what often happens, those who are deceived by spirits and led astray by spirits aren't satisfied with that alone. They now want to deceive others. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 through 3. <coughs> Pardon me. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. See, he's juxtaposing things here. These men have been deceived. And what is it that has deceived them? What is it that deceived them? Well, if you look at the text, it says, back in verse 1, it says, "...themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons." This is why this is why Paul is directing them back to what the Spirit has expressly taught. These men have been led astray by deceitful spirits, by the work of demons. And what is the work of a demon? Well, what these men are calling into question is the goodness of the created world. They're saying, "No, marriage is bad. Marriage is bad. Marriage is bad. What are you talking about?" If I turn to Ephesians, it says that marriage is an image of Jesus Christ. Right? God said, go forth and be fruitful and fill the earth, and how are you going to do it without marriage? How are you going to do it without marriage? So you you see exactly what's going on here. There are people who are opposed to, these demons are opposed to God. They've convinced these men that what is being taught is spiritual and godly and upright, and what it is, is it's antichrist. Right? And and, and part of the problem is a lot of us hear this kind of stuff, right? How many of you guys are Fed up, up to here, with the materialism of Christmas. Yes, show of hands. I'm with you, right? And what is our natural reaction? To back away from Christmas. Well, that's just a bunch of materialistic nonsense. So what we need is, 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 is to separate from stuff. There's too much stuff in Christmas. Well, what I think Paul is going to make the argument here is that there's not too much stuff in Christmas. It's that it's used the wrong way. It's used the wrong way. Paul is showing that what, what these men are doing is contrary to the word of God and what the word of God teaches about creation. W- what, what is going on is that they're, right, they're rejecting things that are good. They're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Right? It's not about... The kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking. Right? Now, in one sense, you got to turn to this group over here and say, "Listen, guys, hey, right? Like in Corinthians, they're getting drunk at communion. Think of how much communion you got to have to get drunk on it." And he's saying, "Listen, guys, you're getting hammered, right? Drinking the communion wine. Right? The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. Okay, now you go over to this group over here, right? And alcohol is terrible. You can't have it in the juice, right? You got it's juice, right? Because Jesus would never ever drink alcohol because he was so good." He's so sweet and kind and a loving man. He would never have alcohol. Alcohol is of the devil. So you have these people over here, and you're like, guys, you don't even have alcohol in the communion. right? Jesus did not hold up Welch's grape juice and say, this is my body, or this is my blood. It's for you to promise eternal life. That's not how it worked. Welch's grape juice was invented in the 18- Don't even get me started, okay? <laughs> By a minister whose last name was Welch who hated alcoholism. Now, how many of you hate alcoholism? Now, if right, if we just took all the alcohol in the world and we loaded it on a boat and we put it out in the ocean and sank it, would that deal with people's problems, the alcoholic people's problems? No. So, there we are easily can, deceived by these things. The kingdom of God is not about eating or drinking. It's not about a. Right, It's a feast, and so th- this is a feast. What we're going to in Revelation at the end, when the, the heaven comes down and earth meet and, and Christ comes back and everybody comes out and everybody gets their new robes, we're going to sit down to the, the feast, the feast of the Lamb. And many of us hear that and we think, okay, well, life then, <laughs> it should be like that all the time then. There's nothing else to be said. Christianity is a feast, so let's feast all the time. And you're like, guys, the kingdom of heaven is not about eating or drinking, right? And then you got, oh, my goodness, these guys over here, and they won't get priests who aren't married telling me, how, right? I love that uh, Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting you watch it with your children. <laughs> Gran Torino, right? And he's got this Catholic priest who won't leave him alone, and his answer is, I'm not telling my sins to a, a 38-year-old virgin, and there's something to be said about that, right? Because the priest is trying to sit on Eastwood down and talk to this 70-year-old man about his life, and he's like, listen, kid, nice try. I got to go. <laughs> because I, I, would feel the, I would feel the same way now. You're like, you don't have any idea what you're talking about. Right? Because why? The, the, right? <laughs> Does Christ not have a bride? Does Christ not have children? Right? No. What, what do you, this is not natural in any way, shape, or form. What you're doing over here. Not right, you, you, you don't live in a, a in a stone cell drinking cold water, vows of silence. What what does that have right? Is, is God silent or did God speak the world into being? It seems like he likes a lot of noise. Right? He likes big families and then what are they? Quiet? <laughs> I mean, so this this is it and, and, and everyone in this room naturally goes to one camp or the other. You're, some of you are over here with me, where we're like, "Oh, oh, you don't like whiskey? Do you? Have you read the gospel?" Right? <laughs> that's extreme, but I think maybe I've said that. And then you've got these people over here, and you're like, "No, no, no, I can't enjoy things because that's not godly. That's not spiritual." But this is what C.S. Lewis said. This or yeah, where is it? I got confused. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, there is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. That is why he uses material things like bread and wine to put the new life into us. We may think this rather crude and unspiritual. God does not. He invented eating. He likes matter. He invented it. See, the problem is there's this thing called dualism. And, and that's what this is about, these, these ascetics. This is what they want. Matter is bad, spirit is good. Okay. So you throw out matter because it's all bad, and then what you're left with is, is the spiritual. But the problem, right, but if you go to the Word of God first off, it says that God created everything, and in Genesis 131, he looks out on everything and he says, this is very good. Okay, even if you took that part out of the Bible, you still have this problem, is that if matter was bad, before the fall, why did God make it? Why did he make a garden? (laughs) I want you, Adam and Eve, to know the Lord. And so what I'm going to do is build a cave, and I'm going to put you inside there. No, right? No, 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 no. He says, here, I'm going to build a garden. And there's one tree that you can't eat, but otherwise, otherwise... All these other trees go go big or go home, right? Have anything you want, right? You don't even have to wear clothes. (laughs) Amen, right? I mean, think of the liberty of God. Think of that. Like before the fall, just imagine that. You don't, right? Everything is so pure and good. Everything is good, right? Now we clothe everything because it's bad. It's ugly, right? And we can't control ourselves. And we've created all of this. We've marked all the good things that he's made. You can't get away. <laughs> God says, this is my body broken for you, and he gives you a piece of bread. This is my blood spilled for you, and he gives you wine. Because if you want to know about the sweetness of God, you first learn about it in the sweetness of pears. And, and this is a comprehension of, of nature that is very difficult for us. Right? I like John Piper. I think we should all read a lot of John Piper. I think he says a lot of good things about what he calls Christian hedonism, about enjoying God in the things. But I'm always left a little bit stressed out reading him. Like, okay, what's that amount of joy I can get out of the steak that's like right there? It's like, you know, like a speedometer is what I need. Like, I'm putting it up to my mouth and the thing's like, oh, oh cut a little off. Okay, there, I got it, nailed it. And I understand what he's right. He he is a smart Bible thinking man. I understand it. It's just like these ascetics. It's just like Mr. Welch. He hated alcoholism. And and, and he was so fed up with it as, as a wickedness that he said, just get rid of it. And this is what we want to do. Just get rid of it. But that's not what God that's not Christian maturity. Just get rid of it isn't Christian maturity. Now. There is a very effective strategy when you're counseling people where, yes, we are going to just get rid of it for a while. I will let you know when you can have it back. Probably never. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't want to in any way diminish the very effective means of taking things away, right? Because I'm with you. It's like, I can only put so many filters on your internet. At, at some point, we've got to just get rid of the internet, okay? And you can go back to just reading regular books and not watching movies. But the way that God has made the world, this is what it says in Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Romans 1.19-21, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. What can be known about God is plain to them, because he has shown them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Do you want to know the power of God? I, I was once standing on a dock on Lake Washington. It was like 3 in the morning. Don't ask me while I was there. I shouldn't have been there. But we're on this dock, and we're looking out, and, and it's rain. This, this rainstorm, and it's just gorgeous. It's beautiful. <laughs> and lightning strikes this buoy that 's like out in the water, and I have never been so terrified in my life. It was the loudest thing i 've ever heard like i my like my gums tingled after I, I, like my hair was sticking out, like it was so close to us that i i I almost converted right then it took another four years, but I almost converted right then, and you could see like the fish floating in the water like that Okay, I'm getting back in my car. I shouldn't, right? Nothing good happens after 10 p.m. I should go home. This is what God is trying to tell me, right? If you want to know something about the bigness of God, get a telescope and look into space. Where's the edge? Now, it's created so it does have an edge at some point. right? But And I'm again, this is C.S. Lewis. This, going out and looking in the sky used to have a very different effect on us. Right now we can have photographs of what deep space looks like and, and we've, right, we've brought it onto our computer screens and we, and we sort of stand over it and we, it seems small to us. We seem big because we can do these things. And we've been to the moon. Right? Space is tiny. Solar system's tiny. We can send things now to the, like to Mars. But you used to be able to go out before we've corrupted our comprehension of these things, and stand out and and look up at a night sky and feel small. That was the effect that the stars had on people for thousands of years. And I I don't disagree that we should get a telescope and look into deep space. I just told you to do it. But we have to occasionally, right, go out to eastern Washington and stand in a field and look up at all those stars. You will feel as small as you really are. And this, this is this is how we experience God. This is how we do it. Now, <laughs> now, how many of you guys experience God this morning when you're eating Cheerios? Why, eating Cheerios? You eat Cheerios, right, Cubby? No, probably not. Right? I, I can't believe I don't every time I drink coffee, but I don't every time I drink coffee. Why? Why? I think Paul, his, ar- his argument is that um, his first argument is that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the- those who believe and know the truth understand that the things that were created were created by God and they're very good and they're not to be rejected. There is nothing wicked or, or, or divine about a car. A car is just a bunch of metal and plastic. And gasoline and controlled explosions, which are somewhat miraculous, that is just sitting there. Right? Now, I can get in that car and I can go to work and I can work really hard and I can provide for my family. Or I could go into a bar and I can drink way too much and get in that car and go and commit vehicular homicide. Right? The car. This is why I, this Babylon Bee article I read recently it was really funny that um, the, the SWAT team shows up at one of these big shootings and they immediately throw themselves onto the AR 15 and arrest it because guns kill people, you know. Right? it's It's clearly the gun that's the problem. it's not the guy who's holding the gun it's the gun uh if that right If this were true, if they were logical in this way of thinking, why would you ever arrest a person? You're like okay we'll, we'll take the guns and you're free to go right If you just wouldn't have had the gun, you wouldn't have done this terrible thing. Stuff isn't good or bad. stuff isn't good or bad right it it, it what it is is this it, it's the what calvin called. Calvin said this, let us notice the reasoning in this matter. We ought to be content with the freedom which God has given us in the use of different foods, because it is for our use that it, he, he has created them. It is the joy of all godly people to know that every food which nourishes them is offered them by the hand of the Lord. Okay, God made everything and he called it very good. And he called it very good because he looked out at it and he said, this is a lot of stuff that people can use to glorify me. There is a lot of variety here. The problem isn't the stuff. The problem is what man has come along and has done with the stuff. So we get to the next argument. Paul has done a biblical argument He's gone with, this is the triune God who's made these things. This is what the word of God says about these things, is that it declares the glory of God. And now what he does is he moves on to his final argument, which is who the church is. He's telling Timothy who the church is. This is what we need to know. If you're going to go out and you're going to take things from nature and you're going to use them, it's, this is the important ingredient right here. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Nothing is to be rejected if it's, if it's received with thanksgiving. If, if you're not going to receive something with thanksgiving, put it down, you're not going to use it correctly. You're not. God created the world as a means of communion and worship, as an expression of his grace, which when received with gratitude and thanks becomes a, a way of knowing and enjoying him. Coffee has a lot of caffeine in it, and caffeine is awesome. Coffee, when it's done correctly, can burn your mouth. That's the only way I like to drink it. It's amazing, right? And how often do I lift it to my lips, and it's not a religious exercise, because I could care less about God right now. What I want, right, is the hot cup of coffee, because that's what I need in the morning. The example of these false teachers, marital intimacy and food. Right. How often does God, especially us, no one in here has ever really been hungry? This is what I, I try to, my parents tried to convince me Mike, you're, you've never been hungry a, a moment in your actual life. Yeah, but I could really eat right now. Not the same thing. Not the same thing at all. The world is full of stuff. And, and our job is to sanctify it by the giving of thanks, sanctify it by the giving of thanks. John Piper wrote this, Sexual relations and marriage are not worship, but may become worship. Smelling toast and bacon early in the morning is not worship, but may become worship. Feeling fall breezes on the skin and fall sunshine on the face and fall colors in the eyes and fall fragrances in the nose are not worship, but they may become worship. Tasting and enjoying the pleasures of this world are not worshiping or honoring or loving or supremely treasuring God, but they may become that. Robert Lethem, he's a theologian, he wrote this, even our daily food marks the interface between the humdrum material world and the beneficence of the God who provides for us. Our daily bread should be the occasion for thanksgiving, praise, and communion. Now, see, the problem here is that we don't really understand who we are. We are the priests of God. We are the priesthood of believers. You are a priest and I am a priest. This is a very important doctrine. Okay, This does not do away with hierarchies within churches or anything like that. You still have a husband. You still have a father. You still have a pastor. There still are authorities above you. But... You are a, a royal priesthood. First Peter chapter 2, nine and, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. You have received mercy. This is why Paul calls them the holy ones. This is why when he writes letters, he says saints. He says holy ones. <coughs> and what does holy mean? Holy means set apart. Right? This, right? I, just, I, I had the first time I had a son, he said holy crap. you got to deal with that. But part of it is like, you know, I, it's just so sad to me that this word holy is this way. I hear people use holy and they don't really understand what it is. It means not normal. It means not common. It means something that God has taken and has set apart for a special use. And so he looks out on you people and he says, behold, a holy priesthood, a holy nation set apart. And he says, nothing is to be rejected if it's, if it, right, if it's received with thanksgiving because that sanctifies it. That makes it holy. Because priests aren't allowed to use things that aren't holy. Go back and read Leviticus, the holiness code. Chapter 17 through 26. You want to know how hard it was to be a priest in the Old Testament? It was hard. You can't even leave the tent. Because you got holiness all over you, man. You can't go out there because then you won't be holy anymore. You got to wear these holy clothes that we wash a certain way. And you got to, we got to pour this oil on your forehead a certain way. And you got to eat this food. And you got to eat it this way. And you got to eat it at this time. And then you got to do this. And then you got to do that. And then God looks at us and says, we're a holy priesthood. And we don't think it matters at all. We think, well, you know, spiritual truths. Spiritually I'm I'm like a priest or something. But you're not allowed to pick up a cup that isn't holy. You're not allowed to drive a car that's not holy. You are not allowed to eat a steak that's not holy. You're not allowed to go on a diet that's not holy. Everything you do ought to be set apart. And the setting apart is no longer because you're free in Christ now. You don't have to get out the special bowl and wash it with special water and go through all this ritual and let's march up to Jerusalem and make sure we take care of business. No. You you receive the thing that God gives you. And with prayer and the reading of the word, by giving thanks to God for it, you set it apart for holy use. And in this way, you're making the world holy with thanksgiving. The whole world Right. Think of the holiness of God used to dwell in this little room, (laughs) inside a little tent, inside this little nation, in this little part of the world. And now we have this royal priesthood cut loose all over the world who can take up everything and thank God for it and read the word of God over it and pray for it and and rejoice in it and by giving thanks make it holy. Right. And then we come to Thanksgiving and we're, right? (laughs) Thanksgiving, come on. This holiday, i got to deal with Uncle Joe. This holiday, i got to eat my sister's burned yams again. (laughs) Is there anything more sanctifying than the secular version of Thanksgiving? No. I I don't. I mean, I've, I've said this joke before. I'm not kidding. My family comes in shifts because they can't all be in the same place at the same time. It is extremely sanctifying. What my family might not like, the rest of them, is if I got around and we held hands and we thanked God for it. Thank God these people can come here at different times of the day and sanctify it, right? Nobody, everyone would be like, you're out of your mind. But wouldn't they be just at, just as much when they think I'm out of my mind if we gathered around the oven before we put the turkey in it and we thank God for the oven? Right? I mean, when's the last time we did that anyway? Do you know, how, you know how much wood it would take to feed the lilias if you had to make a campfire? <laughs> <laughs> right? Be like, all those boys, That's, all, that's just, yeah, okay, you have all these strapping boys, we never need firewood, baby. We've always got it. And it's the same in my house. You know what I would? You know what my life would be like if I didn't have a car? I would have to walk like a mile. <laughs> right? And I was struck by this. I recently, I did, I bought a firearm and my sons wanted to pray that it would never be fired in anger. They wanted to pray over it. It's like, it's very weird. Sorry, I wasn't expecting that. I was like, "Dean's back." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, you know, that's probably a good idea." <laughs> See, we understand that Jesus is the high priest, and what we don't we don't really understand what that means, because there is a high priest. There's only one. There's no other, it's Jesus. But if you go, right, if you go back and you look in the Old Testament, there's a high priest, and the reason that he's called the high priest is because there's other priests. We're only priests because he's a priest. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. See, we're in him. We're his body, right? And the body, if the head is a high, pre, high priest, what's the body? Well, it's part of the priesthood. And this is you. And, and he doesn't want you to just go about ignoring this fact, ignoring him, forgetting the truth, right? It, rejecting things by not using them, right? How often do you think, th- this, this is an example. We, we receive things and we, and we bumble them. And we don't use them to glorify God. And, and, and I would say a large part of it is because we never stop and actually think about what we're supposed to do with the object because we're very, very intellectual people. There was a family years ago who, who went to this church, and again, I, I thought this was weird. They had us over to this new house that they purchased, and they wanted us to go room for room, praying in it, singing songs, thanking God, praying for what would occur there, for the people who would come over. They were making the house holy with Thanksgiving. They're, they were priests. And I know that family, and okay, they're not perfect. I can tell you that. But those people have a sense of their calling. And they're teaching it to their children. Because our calling is to make the world holy with Thanksgiving. Right? To take this secular holiday, (laughs) we gotta meet with these people again. Right? If you have families like that, maybe you like your family. And this is awesome. Right, You love Thanksgiving. Most of us don't, though. So I'm kind of talking to that group. right? <laughs> we are called to gather once a year on this day and give thanks. And the problem with us is we just don't know how to do it well. It should be something that we do all the time. It should be a way of life. It should be a liturgy that exists in and through us all the time. Thanksgiving, we should be like, oh, oh, you guys need some, you want to have a Thanksgiving feast? Well, we do that every day. Because every day we sit down around the table, and we thank God for the chairs again, and we thank Him for the table again, and we thank Him for this food. Every car, every plate, every house, every cup of coffee, every spouse, every book, every tool, every shoe, every phone, every DVD, every paper clip. G.K. Chesterton said, you say um, grace before meals. Great. I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before the concert and the pantomime, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching and boxing and walking and playing and dancing, and grace before I dip the pen into the ink. Now, something that G.K. Chesterton was known for was his big-hearted love of the things in this world and people. He, he was gregarious, he was winsome, and people just loved him. Even the people who hated him loved him. Because there were several people who hated him, but they still loved to be around him. And, and you know, I don't want to teach you sales techniques to go out and make the Christian faith more appealing to people. I don't care about that. I want you to make your life holy with thanksgiving. I want you to make your house holy with thanksgiving. I want you to make your marriage holy with thanksgiving. I want you to go to work and make it holy with thanksgiving. Right? When is the last time in your place of business somebody stood there where the printer is and thanked God for it? Do you know how hard it used to be to make copies of things? Right? I was in Ireland and I heard the process and I thought, thank you for letting me be born now. Right, thank you. Yeah, I would not I love books. Yeah, you know how hard it used to be to get books. It used to be hard, right? John Adams was considered somebody with a large library even after the Gutenberg press and he had just over 2000 books. And this was apparently like a world renowned library. And I think I've got that many books in my garage. I would not have survived. But but this is this is this childlike wonder that Jesus is always talking about. Go out and make the world holy with thanksgiving. Start practicing now so that when thanksgiving comes, it's not such a chore for us. It's not so much hard work. We are the priests of God. He has called us to be set apart. He's called us to be holy. And, And it's not just the individualistic American way of thinking about it. We are a priesthood. And everything we touch should be set apart. And and the way that we do it is through the word of God, through prayer, and through the giving of thanks. Let us be like Chesterton. (laughs) Turn Netflix on. When's the last time you said, thank God for Netflix? I know that's a little harder. (laughs) But this is how our kids should hear it, our spouses should hear it. People who know us should just thank you. Thank you for this. And then what you're going to do is you're going to sin less with it. Because if you if you go at it with that kind of mindset, you're not going to misuse it. You open that bottle of wine, thank God for it. I, I guarantee you, your experience of drinking it, if you have trouble drinking wine, would be different. So that, that is our call this year. Let us go forth, let us make our homes and everything that we receive holy with thanksgiving. Because God has filled this world with good, 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 good things. And that goodness is for us to, under, to know how good he is. And when we make everything that we touch about him, that's, what, that's the holiness. That's the goodness. That's really sanctified living. And now to close, A.W. Tozer in his book, Roots of Righteousness, says this, We should never take any blessings for granted but accept everything as a gift from the Father of lights. Whole days may be spent occasionally in the holy practice of being thankful. We should write on a tablet, one by one, the things for which we are grateful to God and to our fellow men, and a constant return to this thought during the day will serve to fix the habit in our hearts. In trying to count our many blessings, the difficulty is not finding things to count, but to find the time to enumerate them all. And I pray that that would be your burden this week, that you would not have enough time that there would be too many things and not enough time to thank God for them. So now, as a church, I would like to enumerate just some, some of the glorious and good graces that God has bestowed upon people in this community. We start with the Schmidt family. The Schmidt family wants to thank God that Peter's hip replacement was successful. We want to, they want to thank God for all the Redeemer families, for their love and support and prayers and blessings. They want to thank God for Pastor Mike and the elders and the deacons and their leadership. They want to thank God for the Kloss family and what a good example and blessing they are to us as church families. The Balkans want to thank God for good health and successful hernia surgery for Liam and for baby number four. Because they're pregnant again. Isn't that glorious? Educational opportunities for the children have come along. They've had to make some difficult decisions. They also want to thank God for the salvation and baptism of Emmett and Neal's, which was just earlier this year. It feels like that was years ago. Well, those little saints, right? I'm, they're not here. I'm not going to get my picture because they draw me a picture every week, and they, <laughs> they bring it up to me, and I keep them in this, this little book. The Graham family, who's visited us several times, who thought they were going to be here today, they, they said this, Our family is grateful for the many blessings that we've had in the midst of a life that seems to be unceasingly accelerating. Some of the most significant life events have occurred just this year. From his retirement from the Navy, they renewed their vows, they started new businesses, and had a, another baby. We've learned; They've learned valuable relationship skills as we've participated in numerous events across the nation. And throughout everything, the Lord is pressing and molding them into his image. And the 2019 has felt like they were living in an Instapot, of which they give thanks. That, that's, not, <laughs> that's not a knock. Teresa Brown says her receipt of health issue, um, she, she is doing well. She's, um, she wants to give thanks for lifestyle changes that she's made. Amy, who recognized her symptoms, and got her into a clinic. Her daughter, right? Amy works at a clinic and, and, and was observing you and noticed that there was something going on and got you in in enough time to find out about it and to get the help that she needed. And that's glorious. And her daughter, Robin, as well, got her, helped her get medical treatment and to listen to the doctor, she puts with an exclamation point. Do you not re- usually listen to doctors? No. <laughs> she would like to thank God for her improved health and healing. For what God is doing in the lives of Doug and their children and grandchildren, for Sean and Liz's baby, there were some concerns going into that, and the baby has come and is healthy. She would like to thank God for her husband, her brothers and sisters in the Lord, and for God's mercy and grace. She says that God is good and that I am grateful to God because he has redeemed me, a sinner. Covey says, "Thank you, uh, Thankful for re- deepening of relationships with the Lord since Linda has passed. He's thankful for the wonderful family and the fact that they are all walking with the Lord. He's thankful for Redeemer Church and all the amazing people that it's been his privilege to serve for so many years. He is especially thankful for Mike and the deacons for their faithful service. Thankful for God's ongoing plan for his life and that He is faithful to reveal it to him as he walks in trusting God day and day by day. He is so so grateful for the thank- and thankful for the steadfast love and faithfulness of his God. And he should know, right? (laughs) Amen, brother. The Leslies are thankful for God's provisions, for his protection, for his steadfast love and mercy and grace. And Jerry is thankful for his brother Eddie, for books and for Legos. Amen, Eddie. Love me some Legos. The Chacos are thankful for continued employment for Nate, especially during all the Boeing hullabaloo and God's provision for their home and their family. They are very grateful for God's work in their marriage and his faithfulness in helping them rear Margaret and for their believing family members who help them walk faithfully. Margaret is thankful for stickers and buckets and dragons. (laughs) Amen. The Gambles, who are not here with us, they're with their kids on the East Coast. They're having a great time. They're thankful this year that they got to go to Maryland for Thanksgiving, for 35 years of marriage, and for the progress this year in growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a lot, right? And we know that's not all. The, the problem isn't having things to list. The problem is the time it takes to list them, right? Right? My wife and I talked about it several times. We didn't have anything on here because we, oh, we'll do it, we'll do it, we'll do it. And then when I actually thought about it, I was like, I don't. I'm thankful for every. I'm like my kids. You say, what was your favorite part about the fair? Oh, so many good things. Everything. And w- when I stop, right, and I think about what God is doing, I'm grateful for everything. But it, I have to stop and think about it. So so let's go this week, right? Let's sit down with our families. Let's gather around and eat whatever the burned thing is that your aunt made with your weird Uncle Joe, right? And let us make it holy with thanksgiving. Let us take the time to stop and really think about what the Lord has done and give him the thanks and praise through his name. And amen. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness, your provision your protection, your love, your care. We pray, Lord God, that you would go before us this week and protect us as we travel. You would protect us uh, as we gather with family members. You know the broken relationships that we have had, the frustrations, our own failures in them. And we pray, Lord God, that you would give us um, eyes to see Christ in everyone that we know, everyone that we meet, everyone in our family, that you would help us to be ministers and priests as we not only give thanks, Lord God, but that as we lift the people that concern us up in prayer. We pray, Lord God, that you would indeed work in us and through us and that you would um, instill in us a sense of gratitude and a sense of wonder at all of the amazing things that you constantly are pouring out upon us. We praise you and we give you thanks and amen.